couple of quick announcements. Uh, one, we're going to be changing the order of the service just a little bit right here at the beginning. Um, so everyone's aware of that. Um, and then I want to bring to your attention highlight on the back of your bulletin. There's the uh, announcement about uh, Tenebrae coming up this year on April the 13th at 6 p.m. Uh, the elders and the deacons and I have been working really diligently trying to get prepared, doing something uh, a little bit different, maybe a little bit old school, and uh, kind of excited about this year's Tenebrae service. And so there'll be a sign-up sheet for that. There's some uh, in your bulletin, I think there's some little sheets or little uh, slips that you can sign up for that. We're having a nice meal that evening. And so we really want to encourage everyone to come. We certainly want our um, our our young families to know there will be child care for your children provided here that night and so we'll have some activities for them to kind of keep them busy and so forth with so we just really want to encourage people to attend this year um, our Tenebrae service as we're moving and getting prepared for that as I said I'm going to do things a little bit out of order um, I'm responsible today for the minute for missions and the opening or the preparation for worship. So what I'm going to do, I think I'm going to go ahead and jump straight to minute for missions, and then we, we'll, then I'll read our scripture for our preparation and worship. We'll have our time of preparing ourselves, and then after we prepare ourselves, Scott, you can come and lead us right into worship after that. So let's go ahead and jump forward. Today's fast forward Sunday, anyway. If you remember, I told you last week we're fast forwarding this week to to. Uh, Palm Sunday, so welcome to Palm Sunday, and, uh, and so anyway, we'll fast forward again. Minute for missions. Today we're highlighting New Tribes Mission. Maybe you're like me, and um, I didn't know a whole lot about New Tribes Missions until a couple of weeks ago. I was able to kind of go on a solo retreat, and New Tribes Missions offered me an apartment room for me to stay in free for a couple of days, and so I got to just kind of hang out there and, and read my Bible and do some study and some prep work and that kind of stuff. I got to spend some time with Greg Sanford, actually about 10 hours. So he showed up at my door about 11 o'clock, and about 9 o'clock that night, we finally said goodbye to each other, and we went, we talked for 10 hours. Learned a lot about the mission, learned a lot about what they do. Um, one of the things he said is that New Tribes Mission is the third largest mission-sending organization in the world. Um, second to, I uh, can't remember, Aviation Fellowship and the uh, IMB of the Southern Baptist convention. So we as Southern Baptists supporting the, uh, the IMB and New Tribes, we support two of the top three of the work we do uh, here at this church. So I thought that was interesting. So anyway, I'll show you a quick little blurb. This is from the president of New Tribes Mission uh, to show you kind of what their thoughts are so we can learn a little bit more about that. And then I have a specific way I want us to pray tonight. So show our video. Greg would want us to pray for today is that God would raise up missionaries. Probably the one thing I learned from him the most is that as America becomes more affluent, as we focus more on comfort and pleasure, the number of missionaries serving in the world is steadily going down. And so to find that one point New Tribes Mission had five training facilities around the world, they've condensed it all down to one in Missouri right now. And so there's a great need for missionaries in the world. This map is from the IMB. Those red dots are unengaged people groups. People defined by, a group defined by having a language and an ethnicity and a culture that is definable as their own. 
These dots represent people who have no gospel knowledge whatsoever. They have no Bible in their language. They have no missionary there in their midst telling them about the gospel. They're completely cut off from what you and I know as the scriptures and about Jesus. If you notice, the bulk of where the work to be done is left in the world is in some of the hardest places in the world to think about going and being a missionary. India, the Pakistans, Afghanistans, the Middle East. That is where the most, that's where the biggest populations of people are left. And so for us to have missionaries go into those areas, it's going to have to be people willing to lay their lives on the line for Jesus Christ. And so if we want to see the lost come to salvation, if we want to see the last people groups reached, if we want to see the Great Commission fulfilled, if we want everybody to hear the gospel, as Jesus promised it would be, we must pray for missionaries to be raised up to go brave men and women to go to these places of utter darkness where Christianity will be unpopular and be willing to give their life to Christ. And so I ask you today, as we'll be talking about our king and his kingdom and the expansion of his kingdom, let's pray for those to go serve our king. Dear gracious heavenly father, Lord, we come today to pray to you the great mighty king, the one we call our king, the Lord of lords and the king of kings, who came and established his kingdom, Father, an eternal kingdom, Lord, and you've told us to invite people into that kingdom. Lord, we pray for these dark corners of the world. We pray for these places that are anti-Christian, and we pray for you to raise up men and women in these days, Father, that would be courageous and bold, that would be like Joshua and Caleb, like Moses, and go into these dark places and tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there are people around the world, it is hard for us to imagine. We can't even comprehend that there are people in the world who've never heard the name Jesus, who don't have a Bible. Father, we have more Bibles in our, in our homes than these people have in their entire countries, in their villages, in their, in, their, in their whole world. They don't have that. And so we pray for new places like New Tribes Mission who raise up people to translate Bibles, for Wycliffe, for the IMB, for missionaries who love Jesus more than they love their life. And Father, we pray that we would love you more than we love our life that we're ready to lay it down for our brothers and sisters, that we are ready to lay it down for those who don't know you. So we pray for missionaries to be raised up and the gospel be spread around the world because you, our king, ask us to do it, and you certainly deserve to have it done. You are great and mighty. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we take a few moments to prepare ourselves for worship and before Scott comes, we'll have some time to reflect. I want to read to you from 1 Timothy 6, chapters, verses 13 and 16. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ which he being about at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Wow, this morning I heard a lot of talk, 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 talking. I didn't think people were going to get quiet when Pastor Jason came up here this morning. We all have something to say, don't we? We all love to share things. We like to, you want to come sit down here, sweetie? We all like to share things. We like to tell people. I was telling people, oh my goodness, I went to a play last night. It was awesome. It was amazing. I was telling people, my cousin's daughter had a baby. I'm so excited. We just have so much good things to talk about, don't we? You know, there's lots and lots of ways of communicating. <clears throat> Did anybody ever see this? It's a message in a bottle. And there's a true story about a man. His name was Harold Myers. And he was going on a vacation. He was going to take a cruise to the Caribbean. So he read up on all the sea stories that he could before he left. And he found out that people, ever since 320 BC was the earliest one they found, would put notes in bottles and set them afloat in the ocean. They could have been somebody stranded on a island that needed help and they sent a note out and said help me I'm here come get me or it could just be somebody sending a message to see how far it would go and that's what he wanted to do so he took three bottles and he put three notes in and he wrote in both English and Spanish and he put in a dollar and the note said if you get this please send me a note and tell me where you found it he set three bottles afloat, and he got messages back from two of those, which is amazing. One of them they found 300 miles away. He got a letter that was postmarked France. Well, <laughs> the bottle didn't end up in France. It just so happened that somebody from France was vacationing on another island and found the bottle. And the other one drifted for four months and it went 2,000 miles and somebody was kayaking in the ocean and found this bottle and so he enjoyed this so much he continued <coughs> to send messages in bottles and he has gotten back numerous numbers of um replies and and some of them he's even um, formed relationships with he sends Christmas cards and gifts to people now that he has met through his his messages in bottles now <clears throat> I'm not real sure that's a real good way to get the message out is it God wants us to get the message out Jesus told us to go out into all the world and spread the gospel baptize them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit tell them about me and i will be with you always well we saw on the video we heard some talk about missionaries and how they're going out into the world now i don't know do you think any of you 
can go over to Africa tomorrow and tell some people about? No, you don't. Well, you think you might like travel to some other foreign place and, and tell people about Jesus? I mean, maybe someday when you're bigger, right? But right now, you have a mission field. We all have a mission field. Whether we are going to go on an airplane and fly away, whether we're going to put a note in a bottle and send it out, whatever we're going to do, we have a mission field. And it's right here. It's right outside these walls. It's wherever you go. It's to school. It's to the store. It's walking down the street. You have a chance to tell people Jesus loves you. Jesus cares about you. Jesus died for you so that you are going to live in heaven with him forever and ever and ever. You all know what John 3.16 is, don't you? Can we all say it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's as simple as that. That's all we have to tell them. We have to tell them God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And that is what your ministry is. That is your mission. And I'm going to challenge you this week. I want to see if any of you can pray that God will put somebody into your path that you might tell them that Jesus loves them. That's all you have to do. Just tell them, you know what? Jesus loves you. Okay, can you do that? All right, it's a challenge. All right, thank you. Okay, those of you who are going to Children's Church can go. Have a blessed day. Thank you. Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel, the 19th chapter this morning. And the 28th verse for our time on Palm Sunday. Over the next several weeks, we'll be trying to concentrate and build some anticipation and some lead up to Easter, to the Resurrection Sunday. Uh, what I consider, what I believe wholeheartedly is the most important day in all of history, the day that Jesus was resurrected. Um, Holy Week, starting from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, obviously is a week, but there's so much that goes on during that week to it, we don't have enough time from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday to cover it all. And so we're going to have to fast forward a little bit so we can cover some more of the events that go on that week as, because I think they're particularly important and pivotal. We're going to just cover five of them over the next Sunday. Today we'll do Palm Sunday. Next week we're going to look at the garden and, and, and Jesus' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. The week after that we're going to look at Jesus standing trial before Pontius Pilate and what we see there. The week after that, which will actually be the, the real Palm Sunday, we'll get to celebrate and the kids will be here that day to, to invigorate our worship and that kind of stuff. But we'll be looking at the crucifixion and what happens there on Gethsemane to set ourselves up for Tenebrae and then for Resurrection Sunday. And obviously on Easter Sunday we're going to be talking about the resurrection. And so that's kind of the plan for the next five weeks, just to kind of hopefully my, my hope is for us to, to just kind of build up to be looking forward to celebrating the high holiday resurrection the source of all our hope the source of eternity 
the, the thing that is the most amazing about Christianity is that our Lord died for us and was resurrected. Before we read today's scripture in Luke 19, let us take just a moment to pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you will bless us with your presence today and with your spirit. Lord, I ask that you fill me with your spirit and use me as a vessel to speak uh, your word. I pray that the spirit will work on the ears of those who will hear what I say today and, and that somehow a miracle will take place and that you will speak to me, to us, through me, to everyone and uh, that we will walk away edified by our time in the word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And he said these things, after he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethage and Bethany near the mount called Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter you will find a colt tied, which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it as he was going. They were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in these days, even you, the things which would make for peace. But now that you have hidden your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. As a lot goes on, we get excited about Palm Sunday because it's the entrance of the king. It's one of those times that we really look forward to every year. Everybody gets excited. We'll be waving palm branches and singing, and we'll talk very excitedly about how great the day is because it's, it, it's the one time in the Bible story that, that Jesus kind of gets the recognition he deserves or, or what we think he deserves. And, and so I hope that you feel that way every Sunday and not just Palm Sunday that you worship Jesus the King every Sunday with great excitement for who he is and, and not just that save it up for that one day of the year. Today I want us to look at Jesus entering as the King. And we think about what happens here. We realize that the people were praising him as King, but what's the disconnect here? Why doesn't it carry over beyond that? Why is this such a short-lived kind of event in the life of Jesus? We'll talk about how people miss Jesus because what they had in their mind was that this King was coming to deliver the Jewish people from Roman authority. And they had in their mind a political kind of king, an earthly kind of king, and Jesus is not that. He's a new kind of king, and so that's what I want us to look at, that, that I think one of the reasons people miss Jesus being king 
is because he's a king different than any other that they've ever seen. He's a new type of king. And so they kind of aren't used to his type. And it's a new type of king. And so that's what we're going to look at just a little bit to begin with. So let's think about the entrance of a new type of king, a new king coming on the scene. First, the purpose of the new king. <clears throat> In verse 28, you see Jesus was going on ahead. He's been with the disciples. He's been doing some teaching, and he kind of marches off and leaves them behind. They're heading to Jerusalem, and it appears that Jesus is not in quite good upstanding with everybody in the community. The Pharisees have been watching him for some time by this point in his story, and, and the disciples are probably a little bit aware that showing up in Jerusalem, every time they go to Jerusalem, they've, they've had a little bit of trouble, and, and they can kind of sense or anticipate, hmm, this, this might not work out just the way we want it to. But Jesus is moving on. He's heading, he's before them. He's actually kind of leaving them in the dust quite literally. He goes on ahead and the disciples are kind of lingering behind as he goes up to Jerusalem. Now what I want you to see is as we read that and see Jesus moving forward with his plan to go to Jerusalem, that this has been started way back in the book of Luke. Actually, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The NIV says, uh, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus is on a purpose. He's got a mission, and the mission is to get to Jerusalem for something to happen. It actually, in the book of Luke, it started way back in chapter 9 at the end part of chapter 9. We're now in chapter 19, and there's a bunch, a bunch of teachings and parables and, and some miracles that take place between the time Jesus set out to go to Jerusalem and the time he gets there. But basically, he sets his mind to go. The whole story of Luke is kind of interesting. We have a couple of chapters at the beginning that give us the birth of Jesus. And the, the one story we have about the boyhood story of Jesus where he went to the temple when he was so many days old and he was teaching the teachers there. We have the story of John the Baptist. We have the temptations of Jesus. We have a little bit, we have about four chapters of public ministry where Jesus starts to do miracles and uh, has the Sermon on the Mount and does some teaching in parables, four chapters. And then he sets out to Jerusalem. This, this moving to Jerusalem is a big part of the story, and getting there is on purpose because Jesus is on a mission, and the mission is to establish his kingdom. Jesus has been about the kingdom since the beginning, and going to Jerusalem will become the place where he starts the new kingdom. As he says, this will be the new covenant in my blood at the Last Supper. As he, as he conquers and says, it is finished. Death has now been conquered. Sin has been atoned for. My purpose has been fulfilled. The kingdom is established. And, and kingdom thinking is much of what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 9, just a little bit before he sets to go to Jerusalem. It says he sent out his 12 disciples together and he gave them power and authority over devils and to cure diseases and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. So before he goes to Jerusalem, he's sending his disciples to preach about his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, when Jesus starts to preach himself, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, Repent. Why should they repent? For the kingdom of heaven is near. 
In Luke chapter 11, Jesus himself is teaching the people to pray at the Sermon of the Mount. Remember, pray this way. When you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. See, kingdom thinking is Jesus' purpose. He's come to establish his kingdom, to, to uh, inaugurate his kingdom, and to advance his kingdom. He is a king, and he's starting a new kingdom. And so I think one of the things you and I should be in this time of year is to be kingdom-minded, to think about God's kingdom, the kingdom that we belong to. Uh, I just was talking with some pastor friends this week and we were talking about this idea about being kingdom-minded, that sometimes we, we focus so much on the castle, our church, and we forget the castle is just part of a kingdom. We need to focus and be advancing the kingdom. I heard someone say a, a, a recent phrase, a recent catchphrase that I've been mulling over in my head. I'll share it with you. Because they were talking about how sometimes we worry so much about the queen, we don't obey the king. That we have a king over us. And, and what they're saying is sometimes we get focused on taking care of the queen. You know who the queen of Jesus is, right? The church. His bride. And we spend all our time worrying about her and forgetting to follow and do what the king himself says. And, and the implication is there is if we will focus on the king, the king will take care of the queen. And so we need to focus on our king. That's his purpose, his kingdom, advancing that kingdom, seeing that kingdom come, praying for the will of the king to be done in our words and obeying our king as a king. That was his purpose for coming, is to advance the kingdom. And the second thing I want us to see is as he resolutely moves to Jerusalem, the, the prophecy of the new king is fulfilled. It's interesting how God works his miracles and weaves into the story all these great prophecies we have about Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we see the triumphal entry fulfilling one of the prophecies of this new king coming. It's different because this new king is humble. He's, he's one filled with humility and sitting on this colt, this donkey colt kind of is different than his day. Actually, he's doing a couple of things. One of the things he's doing is fulfilling another prophecy. He's identifying with another ancient king, King David. In King David's time, donkeys were considered royal animals. They, they were highly uh, thought of in King David's time. And David would ride donkey sometimes. And if you remember one of the prophecies that is told to King David that there will shoot come up from David that will be an everlasting kingdom. And so Jesus, by riding this donkey in, is identifying with the kingdom of David because after David, they changed from donkeys to steeds or to to horses. King said riding on a donkey isn't, isn't prestigious enough and it was after David's time that king started to ride in on, on stallions and you know big war horses whenever they would come into possession into a conquering city or, or coming back from a war whatever to show prestige and power. So Jesus is kind of fulfilling a couple of different prophecies or at least identifying with King David there. And it sets the stage. This whole kingdom 
idea and this fulfilling of the prophecy of a new king sets the stage for what will happen a little later on that we'll see in a couple of weeks the charge against Jesus that he will have to answer is are you a king because there can't be but one and so this is the setting of the stage for what will be the charge against against Jesus so we see these prophecies fulfilled on this day. Another thing we see is the praise offered to the new king. It's interesting, as the disciples get going, they start to, to praise and sing loudly. They're making a big fuss and pop up the good old guys, the Pharisees, and they say, Jesus, you need to make these guys be quiet. You need to rebuke them. You need to make them stop. And Jesus says, hey, you know, if they don't do it, the very rocks will cry out. What I'd like for us to see how different this is is that King Jesus doesn't demand worship. He doesn't make people worship him. Although he deserves it, he doesn't make them do it. He gives them the opportunity, and if we don't do it, somebody will. If we don't praise, maybe these flowers will start to sing. We have the opportunity, but he will not make us. And that's different than other kings, if you'll remember. Remember back in Daniel chapter 6, King Darius, he passed an edict. He passed a, an injunction that everybody had to pray to him and him alone. And if you didn't, you got thrown in the lion's den. Right? That was, he demanded it. Caesar, in Jesus' day and in the years and the century afterward, when the first and second century, when Christianity starts to come blossom, the only person that could be worshipped is Caesar. And our brothers and sisters martyred for a simple phrase from the beginning of the church. If they ever said, Jesus is Lord. That was illegal. That's why our brothers and sisters were fed to the lions, and that's why they were thrown into the rings of the gladiators, because they could not worship anybody but Caesar. Caesar didn't allow it. He demanded that he be worshipped, and when a Christian would stand up and say, uh-uh, Caesar's not my king. Jesus, that's my king. They would be martyred for it. But Jesus didn't demand that. He accepted it because it was right, and it's really interesting to see that how different this is from what Jesus has done in a lot of other places, that he's withdrawn. Usually when Jesus was starting to see a crowd gather, there was one place they wanted to make him king, and he kind of runs off by himself and hides in the woods so they won't do it. He withdraws, but this time he finally accepts what he deserves. And so he says the Lord should be worshipped. So Jesus doesn't demand our worship, but he certainly deserves it. Now, let's just take a quick moment and think about what it tells us that the reason they were worshiping. It says they worshiped because they had seen the great miracles which they had seen. They'd seen what God had done. They'd seen what Jesus had done. And so they're worshiping him because they had remembering how good he was and what he had done. When we worship, why do we do it? Do we take time to think about all that the Lord has done for us? Or do we just kind of show up and go through the motions? Do we do it mindlessly and meaninglessly? Have we taken time to remind us of what God has done and we worship because of who Jesus is, what he's done, how good he's been to us, what we've seen from him, how he's worked in our lives? Is it real worship or is it just some kind of act to try to please him? 
Do we remember what he's done? Take just a few moments and look at the people as they react to the king's presence. So Jesus comes in working on his purpose, receiving praise from the people, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old, of the Old Testament, setting himself up as Messiah, and that's going to lead to a, a, a clash of Jesus being king. There's a group of people there, and there's actually a whole crowd, a multitude of people, and there it's this crowd's composed of what I consider at least three different groups. One, there's the disciples, followers of Jesus. And the word disciple in the Bible, when we hear it, I think a lot of times we think the twelve, but it's often used into a, a larger group of followers, people who follow Jesus. So it's kind of a disciple with a capital D, meaning the twelve, and a lowercase d, meaning a group of other people who follow Jesus. And they're both there. The, the twelve are there, and then there's a whole group of, of other people who are excited. These are the people who have decided, I will follow Jesus. Then there's the opposite of that. There's the Pharisees who represent kind of the enemies of Jesus. People who said, I'm going to have no part of this guy. We need to get rid of this guy. That guy is wrong. We need to be away with him. So there's the disciples, those on Jesus' side. There's the enemies, those against Jesus. And then there's the crowd or the multitudes. And I'm afraid maybe this is the worst people of all worse than even the enemies of God. They're not bad people. They're probably actually good people, people who worked hard and took care of their families and who, who tried to live right and do all the right things. And, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't murderers or anything. They were just ordinary people hanging around there watching what's going on, watching the clash between those who followed Jesus and those who were against Jesus. And they're weighing in their mind all that they're seeing and hearing. And maybe some of them got a little excited and they're, you know, shouting a little bit. And some of them are like, like, oh, I see a Pharisee. I'm not going to let him see me shouting as they're watching everything. And they're just kind of there. The reason I say they're probably the worst people, it's because of what it tells us in Revelation chapter 3. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth think those people are represented today in the world we live in. There's a group of us who follow Jesus. Jesus is our king, and we get excited about that, and we serve him. There's a group in our society who want nothing to do with Jesus. They consider him a liar or a lunatic or a false prophet or, or any number of things or imaginary. They can say some of the worst things about him, and they're against everything that we would hold dear in Christian. They're cold. <laughs> and then there's a mass of people just kind of there watching all this going on. The multitudes are still out there. These are the people we're supposed to be going to and inviting them to be part of the kingdom. Come, be part of God's kingdom. It's open for you. I was just reading, uh, recently meeting with Barry Whitworth, who is the president of the state convention, or the director of the state convention, They've done some research. We talked about, I showed you the big map of people around the world, and we think about, man, that's a, that's a long ways, and we're probably not packing up any time and heading to Afghanistan or Pakistan or any of the other stands that are over there in the Middle East. I kind of doubt that. But think about this. Barry was doing some research, and they've kind of come up with this number. 
1.9 million lost people in Pennsylvania. 13.9 million lost people in the state of Pennsylvania. That middle group, that, that, that group of the multitude and the crowd that's kind of hanging out and watching and trying to decide what they're going to do about Jesus is pretty large. We can be out engaging with those people saying, I follow King Jesus and he'll let you in his kingdom too. He wants you in his kingdom. Do you want to be in King Jesus' kingdom? This is what we're called to do. These people are still around. There are certainly going to be enemies that crossed out there. There are going to be those people out there, but there are some, not bad people, but people who still need to accept Christ as their Savior. And then we're going to look at this little final bit at the end. It's interesting. You think about all that's going on. Here they are, Jesus riding on this colt, right? People laying down their coats and waving palm branches. Glory to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're screaming this at the top of their lungs, waving these branches. Everybody's excited except for Jesus. He comes down, he turns a corner, he hits a bank that leads down, and he catches a glimpse of Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem means city of peace. It's interesting that the city in the world that's named for peace has probably not ever had peace within its walls. And he looks down on that city, the city he loves, his city, and he breaks out weeping. The word there when it talks about him crying is, is not like shed a tear like in a movie, you know, like in a Hallmark movie when they look down and just one little tear trickles down their face. That's not the kind of crying Jesus is doing here. It's violent. It's sobbing. It's gut-wrenching. He barely can contain himself as he looks down on the city and thinks about his beloved people who've missed the Messiah. And so Jesus shows us the heart of, his, of this new king. And this new king is selfless, completely selfless. He's not thinking about himself. Everybody's praising him. Everybody's worshiping him. And they should be because he deserves it. He's the Messiah after all. And in the midst of this high celebration, he sits there and he's brokenhearted about the lost, about those who are going to miss the Messiah, those who ridiculed him, those who have rejected him. He's, he's less concerned about all those disciples following him than the ones who aren't. And maybe we should take some interest in that and be brokenhearted because that's what our king cares about, those who are missing him those who don't recognize he is the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so I'd like to encourage us this year as we approach the most important day in all of history, as we start over the next five weeks thinking about and moving in our minds and in our spirits and in our homes and in our lives to think about and celebrate 
truly celebrate the most important day in all of history, the day of Jesus' resurrection. In our high holiday, as we celebrate, as we praise, as we worship, let us not forget our king's heart. Let us not lose sight of the lost around us. I guarantee you part of that 13.9 million people in Pennsylvania, some of them are here in Clarion or Strattonville or Shippenville or Rymersburg or Marionville. Don't know many more than that yet. Wherever we go. Let us who think about Easter, let us be brokenhearted by those who think of Easter as all about some big rabbit slinging eggs all around the place. And they've missed King Jesus. As we approach the high holiday, let us have the same purpose our king had, to advance the kingdom, to see the kingdom grow, to invite people to be brought to come into the kingdom to enjoy the kingdom which we now belong to and serve our king on the purpose he came as we approach the high holiday let us follow diligently our king's instructions go invite people into my kingdom he said it this way go and make disciples you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Be my witnesses wherever you go. Invite people into my kingdom. It is our marching orders. Be my ambassadors of reconciliation. He says it over and over and over and over in Scripture what we're supposed to do. And so let us approach that most important day in all of history saying, King Jesus, I know your heart. I'm advancing your purpose. I'm obeying your instructions. And I look forward. Let us go forward to this celebration looking forward to another triumphal entry. Jesus is coming back. And the next time, it's not going to be on a donkey. He will be the king victorious on a great white steed. And on that day, I want to say, I want to hear, I want to hear my king say, well done. You knew my heart. You lived up to my purpose. You obeyed my instructions. As Scott prepares to come lead us, as we will have another chance to sing with all our hearts and know if we do not sing because of what God has done for us, if we do not sing from the depths of our hearts, these flowers will cry out. He doesn't demand it. He deserves it, and we have the opportunity. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Imagine this in your head. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on it on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon the white horses. 
clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that it would that it, it that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his name a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us sing to him. Stay with me.